Our reading this evening is uh, from James verses uh, James 4 verses 1 to 6, and I'll read those just before Phil comes to speak to us. James 4 <coughs> verses 1 to 6 are entitled, Submit Yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me just pray for Phil before he comes to bring our message this evening. Dear Lord, we thank you for Phil and for the gifts you have given him. We thank you for, your time, for the time he has spent in your word this week, preparing for this evening. And we ask that you would speak through him this evening. Give him the words that we, you would have us hear. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive this word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I, I heard this joke long ago um, that helps us see why James continues to write about loose tongues in our passage this evening. Uh, the joke goes like this. I was walking along a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump. I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I? He asked. Well, there's so much to live for, I replied. Like what? He said. Are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a Christian or Buddhist? Christian, he said. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Anglican or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, Die, you heretic scum, and pushed him off. Now, look, it's a daft joke, isn't it? But it helps us think about the question, why is it that Christians are some of the quickest people to take offence with one another over what are often minor things? And it's not just interdenominational bickering. It happens within churches too. And the stress of the past year in a lockdown world hasn't made it any easier. Neither has fake news or social media. We too often assume the worst over things that are said or done. And then we sugarcoat our faces for the Sunday services. You know, the writer of this book, James, has spent the last chapter writing about the tongue. And in the passage we're looking at this evening, he's got one more thing to say about the tongue. And it's pretty hard hitting. It's the quarrelling tongue. 
And in our passage, James analyzes the cause, the heart behind the quarrels in the church that he was writing to. And we have to remember that James is writing to a bunch of churches about a timeless problem. And that's why we need to hear it today in a culture that's increasingly being polarized because of what people are texting, tweeting, Instagramming, Facebooking, WhatsApping and TikToking, the church is in danger of being dragged further into a culture of quarrelsomeness. Just to illustrate that, I read this statistic about the reason why same-sex attracted people in the church generally leave, generally leave. It, it said this, there's one big survey that shows 97 97% of LGBT people who had grown up in the church and left, left because they were mistreated. Only 3% reported leaving over theology. In other words, how we act and what we say is really important. Our words matter, says James. Our words can heal and they can hurt. They can be quoted and they can be twisted. They can be remembered and they can be ignored. That's why James digs deeper to reveal the cause behind the quarrels in the church, which is the heart. And he points out three problems. Uh, the first problem is a selfish heart towards one another, a selfish heart towards one another. So James has heard reports of quarrels in the churches or, or between the churches that he's writing to. And he uses actually intense language to describe how horrible it is. Look at verse one and two with me. What causes quarrels among you, he asks. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, the ESV translates the feel of the second part of verse one as this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's an outward hostility between people in the church. The NIV calls it a battle, which is a, a, a small conflict or, or a, you know, a, 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 a limited conflict. But the ESV describes it as a war. A war um, is, is, is a word that describes a long-standing hostility between parties. And James uses that word to help his readers see how damaging their behavior was. His readers would have been very familiar with the consequence and fallout of wars. And they would have had firsthand experience of how war caused terrible damage and massive loss. And how the repercussions last for a long time, sometimes even centuries, certainly for generations. And James says, this is what is happening in our churches because of words. And what's the problem that causes these wars in the church? Well, James tells us in verse two, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. He's hammering home the point that he's been making right through chapter three, that loose tongues are a symptom of inner selfishness. They don't get what they want, so they fight and quarrel, and their war of words ends in character assassination. It's a really ugly picture. Robert Louis Stevenson tells the story of two unmarried sisters who shared a single room. And as people who live in close quarters are apt to do, they fell out. The dispute was over a theological issue. The trouble was that the dispute was so intense that they didn't agree to differ. 
they didn't speak to each other ever again. And it got so bad that these two sisters drew a line of chalk down the middle of their room to mark off their respective territories. They continued to live in the same room together, but never said a word as long as they lived to each other. Each one endured the silence of the other as friends came round or they ate meals. And so in this way, the two sisters lived out the rest of their miserable lives together. Now, it is an extreme example, but sadly, it's possible to put our own interests first to such an extent that irreparable damage is caused. Now, we might think that would never happen here at Oak Hall Church. But just an ounce of reality shows that there is a dangerous and presumptuous attitude to think that. Sadly, many of us know from bitter experience how easy it is for selfish ambition and bitter envy to get into a church. Often it's through small things, the music, the flowers, the organ. Sometimes though, they're bigger things like theology. Sometimes it's not got anything to do with church, but the quarrels are just between people in the church family who have fallen out because of personal differences or personality differences. And that's why James is deliberately ambiguous here. That's why he doesn't particularly point out any specific issue. He doesn't tell us exactly what the quarrels were about. Well, he wants to cover all bases and that's why he does it. You see selfishness and the inability to get what we want leads to fights and quarrels and suddenly there are splits and divisions. And whilst there may not be physical murders, it's true that lives and reputations have been deeply wounded sometimes permanently assassinated. And let me be clear, James is not talking about disagreement. Christians disagree about a lot of things, and that's okay. In our elders meetings, we will disagree on many things, but what we do is we work out through divided opinions in order to come to a, to a final conclusion. And that's good. That's bringing the wisdom of a number of guys to bear upon one issue and to talk it through. Sometimes we disagree about other things where there's no right or wrong answer, where we just hold differing opinions and that's fine. Christians can disagree, we're allowed to disagree. James is not saying we're not, we can't disagree. But what he is saying is let's work out the heart behind our disagreeing and let's disagree agreeably. And yet let's acknowledge how hard it is and hard it can be to disagree agreeably. And so what we can do is take practical steps to ensure that we do that. For example, in our conversations, we can avoid absolutes. A friend of mine used to say, never use the word never in a disagreement and always avoid the word always in a disagreement. That wisdom is helpful both in the home and in the church. To say something like you always do this, or you never do that, can be really hurtful. Sometimes we think people ought to agree with us because we need to be right, and being right validates our opinion. Do you know we need to get past that? If there's no obvious right or wrong, we can be secure in our choice and live at peace with someone else who makes a different choice. But let's avoid being personal. To call someone something that damages their character, brings them down in public and leads to bitterness. 
And finally, let's be quick to say sorry and be quick to forgive. And let's be honest, forgiveness might be costly. It might be costly to our reputation and sense of justice. But, you know, by doing so sincerely, actually the gospel wins, doesn't it? Let's move on and look at the next few verses, because James in them, James points out another problem that causes the quarrels. And it's this, a selfish heart towards God. The second problem that James addresses is not just a selfish heart towards others, but a selfish heart towards God. Look with me at the end of verse two and into verse three. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The believers James writes to didn't receive what they wanted because they didn't ask God. But it got even worse when they did decide to pray, instead of praying for things which pleased God, they prayed for self-centered things. Instead of praying, thy will be done, they were praying, my will be done. And that was the fundamental problem. Do you know, over the years, I've had many conversations with Christians who want to know why God is not answering their prayers. I've even had one conversation a number of years ago when someone genuinely sat me down and gave me an earful because God wasn't making their life any easier. And they were saying, oh, I pray. I've, I've prayed about this so much. I prayed to God to make my life easier, to make my situation and my circumstances better. But I'm not any better off. Why won't God answer my prayers? What James is trying to do in these verses is to teach his readers that when we try to weaponize prayer, in other words, push our agenda before God in prayer, we shouldn't be surprised that our prayers are not answered. And we weaponize prayer in a number of ways. Sometimes we try to convince ourselves that God wants what we want. And we sugarcoat our selfish desires in Christian vocabulary. We convince ourselves God must want what we want. Other times we direct our prayers at others around us, expecting them to listen and do what we want because we've made our views perfectly clear. A bit like, I, I don't know about yourself, uh, I'm guilty of this one. Um, when we put our children to bed, how often have we sat uh, beside our children's bedside and said something like this, dear Lord, please help this precious child of mine realize how selfish they're being towards their brother by not sharing that Lego figure they were playing with earlier, amen. It's a weaponized prayer because I'm selfishly pushing my agenda towards someone else rather than genuinely talking to God. But just as our parents would never give us what we want just because we asked for it, or because we have a hissy fit about it. In the same way, actually, God's not beholden to us, his self-centered children. And that's where the rubber hits the road, both in our quarreling with one another and with our weaponizing of prayers to God. You see, James wants us to see the cause of both is our personal selfishness. Before we continue any further, it's important to take a step back and ask ourselves, how is this message any different from a moral sermon, a sermon that our local imam would preach in, in, in his mosque? Because if it is, we're in danger of saying, James is, is telling us, just don't be angry. 
don't quarrel. Be good and run along. And if he were doing that, he'd be preaching against the whole spirit of the gospel, wouldn't he? He'd be preaching morality, not the spirit of obedience to Christ, which is why we have to read these verses in the light of chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. They're wonderful verses. And if you like, the whole of this section of the book of James revolves around these verses. Let me read them to you. For the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Do you know what James is doing? Is pointing out their selfish hearts here and wants, to, wants them to see that they're not walking in the wisdom that is from above and in the wisdom that reaps a harvest of righteousness. And he's, they're not doing that because wisdom from above walks in the light of the cross. Wisdom from above understands the wrath of God at our sin and Jesus' work on the cross to take away God's anger at us. Wisdom from above recognizes the enormity of the peace that God has lavished upon us. Because once we were at war with God, properly at war with God, once our whole hearts, our lives, our beings, our everything said to God, you are my enemy because you want authority and you want the throne of my life. And I don't want that God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And Jesus died for that attitude. And in dying for that attitude, he gave us a new life. One which says, Lord Jesus Christ, please come and be my king, my authority. Take the throne of my life. So whereas once we were fighting against God, shaking our fists at him, wanting him to go away and wanting him to cancel his claim to be the king of our lives. Now we're saying, oh, Lord God, you've given me such peace. Peace with yourself. Peace with myself. You've forgiven me. You've taken um, your wrath away from me. And you are my king and I love you. Wisdom from above. is all about understanding the peace that God has given us so that we might be peacemakers who reap a harvest of righteousness. So James is asking, how can we be so quarrelsome when we've been sown, shown such forgiveness and grace and peace? How can we so weaponize our prayers when God has given us his son so that we might pray to him directly in peace in the first place? How can we be so self-centered when Christ has been so selfless? James wants his readers to be humble and to walk in the light of Jesus' blood shed on the cross to take away our sin. And next week, we're going to look at that a little bit more. But the last problem that James wants to address is the worldliness of the heart, a worldly heart. They've been selfish towards each other. They've been selfish towards God and now. They have worldly hearts, and that's the last problem. Look at verse, uh, uh, and, and that's what he points out in verse four and five. 
So it explains in verse four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That word world is James's term for life that is lived without reference to God. So worldliness is grounding our identities, who we are and the things we care about, things that are most important to us in the values of a secular world. And the warning is clear from James. Friendship with the world is to make God our enemy. He, he will not share our affections with one another, uh, with, with, with another person or thing. That's why James is talking. That's what James is talking about in verse five. It's a verse that's quite hard to translate. Um, and there are several versions of it in the footnotes. But the, the, one for the, NI, the, the one that the NIV has plumbed for seems to be the best. It says this in verse five. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he, that means God, jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. It basically underlines the eternal impact of ungodliness. God is jealous of us when we flirt with the world. And the jealousy of a jilted lover is perfectly right. James says, that's what God feels when we don't please him, when we behave like adulterers, forsaking our first love and allowing our selfishness to break down relationships with one another and our relationship with God. Now, James's language in these verses is very stark and at times painful. I have to be honest, it's really hard to preach these verses because they expose me as a hypocrite and someone who has a long way to go when it comes to personal godliness and selfishness. And yet I hope that we're all grateful for James's honesty. I certainly am because we need reminding that flirting with the world, that selfishness is damaging to our relationship with God and is a cause behind the quarrels that often flare up in churches. And look, I'm aware these things are not easy to listen to and they may well have brought up some hurts that we know we've caused and need to confess. Or they've reminded us of the way that we've been wronged and the division that it has brought. So verse five is not an easy place to finish the sermon, but let me just say two things, if I may. Firstly, if this has brought things up that you need to talk through, can I encourage you to talk to a friend or a small group leader or an elder, or, or, or give me a ring this week and we can go for a walk? And secondly, next week, we're going to be looking at James's answer to these problems. So there is hope, there is a direction, and that answer points to the wisdom that comes from heaven. There is a way, it's a gospel way that will teach us to control our tongues. So if this passage has convicted us because of our quarreling or because of hurts that we've received, let's remember that when God challenges us about our sin, he always gives us a way forward he always teaches us how to forgive. He always helps us. He always gives us strength. And wonderfully, that strength is to follow Jesus more and more in his humility, in his love. 
If we're struggling to control our tongues, we can learn from him. And rather than being, than, than, than being found in a place where we can't go forward, actually wonderfully, and this is the wonderful thing about James, having spent a whole chapter and much of this chapter talking about the tongue, he explains actually, God's grace to us is that there is a way forward and a way on and a way that following Jesus will teach us to control them.